I've titled the sermon this morning, The Final Word, which has a double meaning. You'll see. You'll see. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for this gathering. Lord, not just today, but every week, Lord, every week that we've enjoyed gathering together as the family of God at Edgewater. Lord, thankful for the many, many Sundays that I've, I've been a part of this family. And I'm thankful, Lord, for the opportunity, Lord, that, that you've given me to be a primary teacher of your word, Lord, from this pulpit. So, Lord, as this is my, my last one here as a pastor, I pray the same thing I've always prayed, Lord, that you would speak, that we would hear your word. Use me, Lord, just to convey Christ to your people. And we pray that in his name. Amen. So today was originally scheduled to be the final Sunday of our Luke series. We've been in the book of Luke for all summer, maybe a little bit before summer. Last week, Andy told you that I would come up here and, and finish out Luke and that uh, for the last Sunday, I would be preaching on the resurrection, um, which sounded really great, but that's actually not quite going to happen this morning. Uh, we are in Luke 24, but Luke 24 has got a lot in it, and I uh, wanted to be able to do justice to the chapter. So there's a particular part of the chapter that I felt was appropriate to focus on, and, um, and next week, Andy will finish it off, and he will be preaching about the resurrection. So uh, we'll have that look to look forward to. But again, as we've been said many times, this is my last sermon here at Edgewater as your pastor. And so I've, you know, I've, I've seen this coming over the last few months, and uh, I've wondered, often wondered in that time, what would I say? Well, how, do you, how do you finish off uh, a preaching ministry at a church, a pastoral ministry at a church, um, what would I say? So I've thought a lot about it. I've prayed a lot about it. But fortunately, it wasn't too difficult to come to a, a clear understanding of what I was supposed to preach because Luke 24, which was on the schedule for today, also contains some of Jesus's final words to his disciples before he departed and went back to ascend to heaven, to the Father's right hands. It was, if you, if you want to say so to speak, it was his last sermon too, to his disciples before the ascension. So as I was looking at what Jesus said to his disciples before he departed, it became clear to me that his final word should be my final word to you as well. We're in between, in Luke 24, the section I'm going to look at, in between the resurrection and the ascension. And in that section in between, Luke tells us about a couple of the disciples' unexpected encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus. And of course, these disciples did not recognize Jesus in that moment. They still thought he was dead and buried. And in fact, that was true just a few hours earlier. But he was, of course, now resurrected and he needed to appear to his disciples before he ascended back to the Father's right hand in order to show them the reality of the resurrection, in order to prove to them that he was, in fact, the Son of God who not only died for our sins, 
but rose again to defeat death, right? To, to give them a sense that, that the gospel doesn't just end at the crucifixion. It, gospel means good news. And it certainly would not be good news if the story ended with a savior who was dead and buried. The good news of the gospel is, of course, that he lives, that he reigns, that the finished work on the cross was vindicated and validated by his resurrection. And its continued application has efficacy for us because of his ascension. He rules and reigns today. He advocates and intercedes for us. All that he accomplished is applied to us, and we can confidently know that because Jesus lives, right? That's the fullness of the gospel. Now, the rest of the New Testament is the the proclamation of that very message. It contains the historical accounts of the disciples, and it contains the writings of the apostles who were to carry that good news into the world and to build up the church. But it's here in Luke chapter 24 that we learn how Jesus taught them how to do that. Specifically, how he taught them how to fully understand from Scripture what they had just witnessed. So that they could go back, look through their Bible, right? And, and, and see more clearly now how all of it pointed to what they're experiencing now in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so they can now take that message and communicate it to the world that Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of God's salvation promises. Jesus taught them how to do that here in Luke chapter 24. And here's how he did it. And I just have one one sermon point this morning, and here it is. The final word is that all of Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. We're going to read that account starting in verse 13. It's a bit lengthy because we're going to go all the way through verse 49. So if you have your Bible out, I encourage you to follow along with me as I read it. And then we'll talk more fully about what Jesus is doing here. Luke 24, verse 13. It says, that very day, that very day being, of course, Resurrection Sunday, two of them, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, there's a lot that goes on between the resurrection and the ascension. The key verse here is verse 27. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we see that repeated again in verse 44, almost the same language, right? Beginning with Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he, he, he revealed to them, he interpreted to them the things in Scripture, all of Scripture, concerning himself. So the question that we might ask is, what Scripture passages did he interpret for them? Which passages exactly did he take them to? And I wish we had detail of this. 
This must have been like the greatest biblical theology lesson ever given, right? Wouldn't you want to know how Jesus did that, what it is that he actually showed to them? But, but let's just look at what Luke does and does not say. First of all, he does not say this. He doesn't say, Jesus took them to Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and some of the other well-known messianic promises and then say to them, it's these specific texts that testify about me. He doesn't say that. Now, perhaps Jesus took them to those texts. I think he probably did. But Luke indicates that he showed them far more than those. Far more than those. He interpreted to them, what does it say? In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And we see in verse 44, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. He walked them through the Old Testament, showing them the things concerning himself. You can't miss the significance of this. Please don't miss the significance of what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching his disciples, and by extension, he's teaching us a whole new way of reading the Bible, in light of Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection. A whole new way of reading the Bible, and not just some of the Bible, all of it. Now remember, for the disciples at this point, all of the scriptures meant what we know today as the Old Testament, so that's what we know he walked them through. But he's teaching them a whole new way to read it. Now, hear me when I say this. A whole new way of reading the Bible is not to say that the original meaning of the text, as it was received by its original Hebrew audience, has been altered in any way. Nothing has been changed or altered. Jesus wasn't changing the meaning of anything. He was simply revealing to his disciples that there was a new and better way to understand it. Same meaning new eyes to see because its meaning has found its fulfillment in Jesus. You ever read a book or watched a movie that has like a, a fairly consistent plot line and you're following along, you, you think you're tracking along with it, and you probably are to the, for the most part, but then there's that, there's that end scene, that big reveal where you're like, oh, wait a minute, now I understand all the stuff that I've been watching. I thought I was tracking with it, but now, wow, I get it. I, I think of a movie like The Sixth Sense. There's probably others like that. Some of you are going, I was thinking about that too, right? right? The whole time you're watching the movie, you think you're tracking along, okay, like, like this kid sees dead people and this guy's Bruce Willis, he's trying to figure out who, you know, who tried to kill him and all this stuff. But at the end, you, you go, oh, wait, he was dead the whole time. I get it now, right? And then you go back and rewatch it. And when you go back and rewatch it, what happens? Did anything change? Nothing changed. Everything's the same. You just see it very differently. And you probably start to pick up things that you didn't pick up before. Wait, now I get it. Like his wife... She wasn't just mad at him. She never looked at him when he was talking to her. She didn't see him. Oh, I get it, right? That's similar to what it means to learn a whole new way to read the Bible in light of 
Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection. It it makes sense now. It, It made sense before, but it didn't make full sense. It didn't make complete sense. It makes full sense now. Every hint in the Old Testament that there was something else coming, there was something that this was all leading to, suddenly becomes clear because you realize that something has finally come in Christ. So another way to put that is the cross and the resurrection are the capstones to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ that finally open up for us a Christian understanding of the scriptures. A Christian understanding of the scriptures. When we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel, the Old Testament suddenly comes into focus and the New Testament finds its mooring. Now, when I say that, I, I know that makes sense. You're probably going, that's not really revolutionary, Bill. But for the disciples in this moment, it was mind blowing and it became transformative for them. Do you know that as they, they began to then write the New Testament, these apostles, as they were writing the New Testament and they were telling this story, they were proclaiming this gospel about Jesus Christ, forming the church, they quote the Old Testament scriptures over 280 times. Why? Because they learned from Jesus that it's the scriptures that testify about him. They learned to see the message of the gospel as an ark that runs throughout the whole entire testimony of Scripture. It's not just something tacked on to the end. And that's important for us to remember every time we open our Bibles. We need to remember that too. A truly Christian interpretation of the Scriptures requires us to have a Christocentric lens through which we read it. We need to learn how to see Jesus in every text. Now, sometimes when people say that, it's a bit controversial. Someone might say, wait, wait, wait. You mean we have to literally find Jesus on every page of our Bible? No, not literally, but figuratively speaking. Listen, yes, you do. You need to find Jesus on every page of your Bible. Okay? You won't find it literally, J-E-S-U-S, but figuratively speaking, big picture speaking, yes, find him there because he is there. If I have a clear and proper understanding of the Bible, if I just have a basic framework for, 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 for what's happening there, I see that there's a trajectory in Scripture from start to finish. There's a grand narrative. There's a consistent plot line. This plotline has movements. Then I, I can begin to see just how this works. How do I see Jesus in all of it? Let me just give you a very, very simple categorization of these movements. If we wanted to just boil it down to something very easy to understand, it would be something like this. First of all, Scripture starts with creation, right? Creation. And what do we see there? We see where did everything come from? We were introduced to God, this one true, holy, good God. And we understand that this is the God who made everything. This is why he made everything. This is how he made everything, including us, for his glory. Two, we see the fall. 
of that creation, what went wrong? The first man and the first woman forever changed the direction of history with their choice to rebel against this one true good and holy God, and by their rebellion, plunging all of humanity into sin and death and condemnation. The fall gives us a framework for understanding the terrible problem that the world is in, and it's the terrible problem that all the rest of Scripture is written to address. Creation, fall, thirdly, redemption. Redemption. Where do we find hope? Redemption shows us this, that God promises that a son, the seed of the woman, will one day reverse what Adam did. And the rest of the Bible, with all of its stories and details, the people, the sacrificial system, the saving events, they tell us how this will, unha- how this will happen by slowly unfolding the good news promise, which ultimately leads us to Christ. And of course, we get to the New Testament and we see Christ comes, God's own son. And by his life, death, and resurrection, the Father creates a new humanity, the church, who enjoys the forgiveness of sins, who enjoy new hearts, who enjoy access to the Father by the Spirit. In Christ, what the triune God originally intended for his creatures, crippled by the fall, is now beginning to be restored. So we see creation, fall, redemption, finally, fourthly, restoration. The direction of history is towards the new creation, the goal and end of God's redeeming promise. The present order is the old creation in Adam, but Christ will bring a new creation. And the Old Testament prophets describe this new creation as arriving in the coming of God's Messiah. God's king. And through his life and cross work, Jesus brings this new creation about, and in his return, this new creation will be consummated. Okay? Basic framework of the Bible. Creation, fall, right? Redemption, renewal. If I get that, that's the trajectory of the whole thing from cover to cover. If I have just that basic understanding of its trajectory, then listen, at every page, Every story, every historical account, every psalm, every prophecy, every pastoral epistle, I should be able to ask, how does what I'm reading right now point me to Jesus as the one who meets this need or solves this problem or binds this wound or fulfills this promise of God to save and redeem and renew his people? Every one of them. How does this point me to Christ? That, I strongly believe, is the new and better interpretation of the scriptures that Jesus gave to his disciples when he appeared to them on that road following his resurrection. And that method of interpretation needs to belong to us too as his disciples. There's a danger if we don't do that. If we fail to have a Christian understanding of the Bible, then what we'll do, and what invariably happens, is we end up reducing the Bible down into something like a reference book for rules, right? Or a reference book that's a guide for moral behavior with Jesus sort of tacked onto the end. And I got to tell you, so many Christians miss 
this grand narrative of the redemptive plan of God that points to and, fi- and finds its fulfillment in Christ. So many miss it. So many sermons miss it. So much curriculum in Sunday school classes miss it. Like the Galatians, I think about Paul's stern rebuke of them in Galatians chapter 1. What does he say to them? He says, I'm surprised that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ by turning to a different gospel. You've forgotten the gospel. Why does that happen? There's no simple answer as to why we so easily forget the gospel. We are nuanced creatures. There's lots of reasons why, but I think I'll make this suggestion. Our hearts sort of tend towards religious exercise over faith. Our hearts long to sort of figure out, how do I do something? Rather than, how do I believe? We read a story like the story of Joseph Joseph in Genesis, the end of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50, and we watch him go from this this place of rejection and suffering to finally getting to this place of honor and power. And, and, And we can read that and say, you know what? The moral of the story is if you have integrity and you have patience and you have obedience like Joseph, God will turn your tragedies into triumphs. So I need to be more like Joseph. But is that the point of the story? Think about it. Joseph a son of Israel who was betrayed by his brothers. They tried to kill him. They thought they did kill him, who was subjected to misery and suffering, but he triumphs over evil, ascending to the right hand of the throne, and he's given power to save his family from death and to forgive them. Is that story just pointing to itself? Or does it point to Jesus? We read that and go, that points to Jesus. The the life and the story of Joseph is screaming out, I'm not the one, there's another. Right? Same thing with the life of David. I'm just giving you a couple of examples here. How many of you were taught that the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 was primarily a story about the triumph of an underdog? You got this seemingly insurmountable, you know, problem, insurmountable odds in in front of you. And the moral of the story is if you just have enough courage for God, you too can face down the giants in your own life. But is that what the story is about? Think about it. David, a lowly shepherd, despised and rejected by his family, yet God anoints him as a king who stands in the gap who faces down a giant who represents sin and death, but he defeats him alone. And his victory counts for all of the people of God. His victory is imputed to them. They are liberated because his victory counts as their victory. What is that about? Does it simply point to itself or does it point to Jesus. See, David's place in Scripture, like Joseph's and like so many others, cry out, I am ultimately not the one. There is another. There is someone else. 
that my story points to. That's having a Christian understanding of the text. Now you might ask, well, where's the application in that? Just seeing how everything points to Jesus. I mean, how does that, how does that tell me what to do? Listen, there's nothing more practical than the gospel. There's nothing more practical than the gospel. Yes, go ahead and have integrity like Joseph. Be courageous like David. Just don't miss the bigger point. The bigger point is that God is your salvation. Christ is your Savior and Redeemer. That's the bigger point. He's the one who will sustain you to the end. He's the one who gets the glory, not anyone else. Pastorally, I got to tell you, in all the years that I've done pastoral ministry, there is no more practical application than the gospel. Because when you come and you have issues, and you have issues, right? We all have big issues in life. We have scary things. We live in a broken, fallen world. Things, things go badly for us. But there are some things that no matter how much integrity you have, you can't solve. No matter how much courage you have, there are some giants that you cannot overcome. But you remember the gospel, and you can endure and overcome anything. Why is that? How is that? Because when we look to Christ, we are always comforted and sustained by the certainty of God's redemptive plan for his people. And if I belong to him, if he is my righteousness, if my, my sin has been forgiven in him, I've been given new life in him, I am promised an eternity and sharing in his inheritance. If those things are certain realities, and they are through Christ, my faith in that promise is unshakable. When that's true, what can overcome me? Even when things overcome me. What does Paul say in Romans 8? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Does that mean nobody will ever bring a charge against you? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means who can bring one that will stand? Because the next thing he says is, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn I mean, no one will ever condemn you. It doesn't mean that. It means they can't condemn you with any effect. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so when Paul understands the application of the gospel in our lives, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's rhetorical. Nobody nothing. And he, he goes on to explain why that's true. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. 
No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that everything they read in Scripture is meant to point them to him and that reality. Everything. It's unshakable reality that God's promises are fulfilled through the finished work of Christ on the cross, and that was vindicated by his resurrection, and it is sustained by his present reign on his throne because he has ascended to the Father's right hand. And he will reign until the last day when he comes in triumph to make all things new, and we will reign with him. Everything written for us in the scriptures testifies about Jesus. And that was Jesus' final word to his disciples. So, Edgewater, that's my final word to you as well. That's why and how I've labored to preach for 12 years. To to show you how this testifies of him. And if there's only one thing that you remember of my ministry time here, I hope it's that. I've tried to live by the words of a, a guy you may never have heard of, an 18th century German preacher. His name was Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. <laughs> he was the Count of Zinzendorf. That's what that means. This is what he said, though. He said, he said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That sounds kind of morbid, right? But it's actually the attitude, I think, that should motivate every faithful pastor. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. This neighborhood and this church changes quickly. And so I know, (laughs) 10 years from now, almost no one in this church or this community will remember my name. And though Andy is about to begin what I hope to be a very long and fruitful season as the primary preaching pastor here at Edgewater, there will come a day when he will preach his last sermon too. And he will be forgotten. But by God's grace, the thing that will never be forgotten is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His word endures forever. And his name will be remembered for eternity and exalted by all who found him to be the gentle and lowly yet powerful and mighty savior that he is. And that's the way it should be. He should be remembered and we should be forgotten. He must increase, I must decrease. So if I've done my job I've done my job 
every sermon on every biblical text that you've heard from this pulpit pointed you to Jesus Christ because all the scriptures testify of him. So I have to conclude here. And here's my final word to you, beloved Edgewater family. Keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Jesus. Find him on every page of your Bible and exalt his glorious name as you trust in him. Let your seeing Jesus in scripture not just be some theological exercise, but like for the disciples, a transformative thing. That you trust in him by faith to be your savior, to be your living hope, to be your advocate in all of life until the last day when he returns to bring you home. I have to go to Texas. Jesus will never leave you. He'll never leave you. So I close with this variation of words that Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said these things to them as he was leaving them. And he he knew that he wouldn't see them again. I hope that's not true of me. But he said these things as he was leaving them for the last time. This church that he pastored for a couple years. And so I want to share with you those words. I've slightly altered them to make them my own to share with you. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Chicago, serving the Lord with all humility, with all tears, and with trials. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public, from house to house, testifying of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Texas, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, only that I might finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to his people of the gospel of the grace of God. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay attention carefully to yourselves. Pay attention to all the flock care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I love you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. <laughs>